The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. This fourth gospel that we've been looking at is built around seven miraculous signs. And it's Lazarus' intent that by reading and studying the signs, men will come to see that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing they might have life through His name. That's the purpose of this book. He says these things are written, referring to the different signs, the seven signs that He's laid out. These are written that you may believe. And this entire ninth chapter is built around one of these signs. Yeshua's healing of the blind man. And the chapter is devoted to this miracle and the ensuing discussion over Yeshua's authority, His identity, His origin. Robert Kaiser, who has written a commentary on John, he identifies seven segments in this story, which he calls the scenes of a mini-drama. And so we're going to kind of follow the scenes that he has laid out here and go through these seven all right, that are here. The first scene is in the first seven verses. It's scene one. It's healing of the blind man. And uh, we actually looked at this last week. We saw that in chapter 9, Yeshua is still in Jerusalem. All right, He's most likely near one of the temple gates when he comes across this blind man who has, they tell us very clearly, he's been blind from birth. And because of his blindness, he's reduced to begging. No welfare state back then, you know, you wanted to make money, you either worked or you begged for it. So he sits there with the rest of the beggars at the temple entrance because, you know, that's most likely place you're going to get someone to give you a handout. I mean, they're going to worship God and they're feeling spiritual. So yeah, sit by the gates of the temple and as they go in, they'll give you a handout. So he sits there waiting, someone to help him out. Well, Yeshua sees him and when he does, the disciples, you know, Right away, jump into, hey, Yeshua, who, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You know, their theology was the reason he's blind, somebody sinned directly, him or his parents. Well, Yeshua straightens out their theology and says, neither did sin, him or his parents. This isn't about sin. This is for the glory of God. So then Yeshua calls the man to himself. He spits in the dirt. He makes a little mud. He puts it on the man's eyes and he tells him to go wash. And this is the last verse we ended with last week, verse 7. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So the man who is sent from God is sending him to Siloam, the pool sent, so he can get his eyes healed. So he went away and he washed and he came back seeing. You got to let that sink in, people. This man is blind from birth. This man has never seen anything in his life. Somehow he gets to that pool. He obeys Yeshua. He washes his eyes. Now for the first time in his life, he sees. Can you even imagine what he's thinking? What he's feeling? Can you imagine how he feels about Yeshua at this point? Who is this man? How incredible. I mean, and he comes back, and you can imagine just looking all around He's familiar with the sounds in the field, but now he sees everything. This is an unheard of miracle. And so he goes back to where he was. And we have to understand that Yeshua didn't perform this miracle 
Because this man believed in Him. Because this man believed He was God's Son or that He was Messiah. This guy didn't ask for a thing. He's sitting there, minding his own business, begging. This is simply an expression of God's grace that becomes an opportunity for teaching. You know, throughout the Bible, blindness is used metaphorically to represent the human condition. We are all born blind spiritually. We're born separated from God. And it's the blindness is an inability in Scripture, metaphorically, to comprehend divine truth. We're, we're blind. We can't see truth. We can't understand truth. In Isaiah 43.8, we read of the people who are blind even though they have eyes, the Scripture says. They have eyes, but they can't see. Jeremiah says, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see. Who have ears but don't know. You have eyes, but you're not seeing anything spiritually here. In Isaiah 56.10, the corrupt leaders of Israel are described as watchmen who are blind. He says, all of them know nothing. And according to Acts 26, Paul was sent with the gospel to the nations for the purpose of opening their eyes that they would turn from darkness to light. So the Bible often speaks of blindness as a metaphor of spiritual ignorance, of spiritual darkness. And that's the picture here. This blind man pictures every each and every one of us. We're spiritually blind. We cannot see. But another thing is we think about blindness and we think of the Tanakh, that the Tanakh talks about Messiah coming to heal blindness. Coming to give sight. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 29, 42, 60. All those places, Messiah is seen as the one who brings spiritual light to the world in the midst of darkness. In our text, Yeshua says that He is the light of the world in chapter 8. And then what's He do in chapter 9? He heals a man who is blind. So this whole chapter is about spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. And what we have to understand here is only Yeshua can give sight to the blind. To have spiritual sight is equivalent to having eternal life. And apart from His sovereign act of grace, men remain in darkness. They die in their sins. Now, in the end of scene one, the blind man is given sight. But as he returns, Yeshua is no longer there. So Yeshua heals the man, or tells the man to go wash in the pool, come back. And then he kind of fades out of the story. And the man returns, Yeshua's not there. He's, this man has never seen him. So he's never seen Yeshua. He talked to him, he's never seen him. So he gets back to where he normally is at, and guess what? He's questioned by his neighbors. And that's scene two. Alright, in scene one, we have the healing of the man. In scene two, which is verses eight through twelve, he's questioned by his neighbors. You get this, don't you? I mean, if you were his neighbor, would you be questioning this man? Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, isn't this the guy who used to sit and beg? I mean, they're asking, hey, look, at, isn't that him? Others are saying, this is he. Yeah, that's the guy. Still, others are saying, no, he just looks like him. And he's saying, I am the one. Yes, it's me. I'm the guy that used to sit here begging. I've never seen any of you before, but you've seen me. You know it's me. Listen, a miracle like this, you don't keep quiet. Everybody who knows this man is talking about 
The neighbors who've seen them beg are asking, is this the guy? And the Greek construction here of the question shows that a positive answer is expected. Yes, that's the guy. It's almost an exclamation. Yeah, this is the guy. He's a fixture in that area. People are used to seeing him and they're astonished at this healing. Some even deny, well, that looks like him, but it can't be him. Well, first of all, if you can imagine this beggar, he might not even have had eyes, right? So he just, his eyes are closed. Or have you ever seen people where their eyes are just kind of clouded over and it, you know, it just looks like there's nothing there. And so this is so dramatic. He's got eyes. There's a brightness. There's a twinkle in this guy's eyes. And they're like, it shows so much life. They're like, this can't even be the same guy. I mean, there's such a difference in this man. They're questioning, is this this the guy we know? So they're saying to him, how are your eyes open? And he answered, well, the man who is called Yeshua, see, he knew who was he. Listen, this guy obviously heard about Yeshua. Everybody in Jerusalem heard about Yeshua. All right, so he knew about him. This guy called Yeshua, made clay, he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Where is he? Why are they asking this? You know, it's interesting. Some commentators say they want to arrest Yeshua. So the neighbors don't want to arrest him. The neighbors don't have power to arrest anybody. You know, I think a couple things here. First of all, maybe they just want to check out this guy's story. Did you really do this to him? You tell him to do that. And this, is this how this happened? Or maybe they just want to meet this guy. He healed you. I want to talk to him. I heard stories about it. I want to talk to him. Listen, if I was his neighbor, I'd be asking both those questions. I want to meet this guy. I want to, I want to ask him, did, is this true? Is this what happened? This guy was blind. He's been sitting there forever. Now he sees? So that moves us into scene three, which is verses 13 through 17, the first interrogation by the Pharisees. Now, the next verse says this. They brought him the neighbors. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. Why did they bring this formerly blind man to the Pharisees? Well, there's no explanation in the text as to why they brought him. But I think that something this man says may point us in the right direction. Later, this guy's going to say this in verse 32. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person. So what Yeshua had just done was unheard of. And they no doubt had heard about Yeshua. They'd heard he was doing different miracles. And the fact that he took this formerly blind man and gave him sight, I think the neighbors take him to the Pharisees because they're the religious leaders. They're the theologians of the day. And the neighbors want an explanation. Uh, can you explain this to us? They're seeking some religious help for this event. A theological explanation, if you will, from the theological elite, supposedly, of Israel. And it seems like this beggar is brought before this gathering, an official gathering of the Pharisees. This could have been a meeting of the Sanhedrin. They bring him in. Hey, you guys got to explain this to us. 
First of all, we have to understand that Israel was a religious society, and it was also a society in which the religious authorities were the authority, the ultimate authority. It was a theocracy. So the Pharisees were the religious and the civil authorities. They had the power to punish. They had the power to desynagogue you. They had the power, even in some cases, to death. All right? So they're the authorities, religiously and civilly. So you're the people and you understand that these Pharisees have been continually putting down Yeshua, continually attacking him. We, we saw in our text previously, they said he had a demon. They said he was insane. They said he's of Satan. They said he's not of God. And they even passed a law saying that anybody that confessed him to be the Christ is going to be de-synagogued. You're kicked out. So maybe these neighbors knew the Tanakh. And they knew that when Messiah came, he would heal the blind men. I'm sure they did know that. And there was, listen, at this point in time in history, there was messianic fever. People were just waiting for the Messiah. They were expecting him to show up. And so here's a man who does something no one else has ever done. He heals a blind man. And they're like, this could be the guy. But the problem is all the religious leaders are saying he's not of God. So they take him to the Pharisees and say, can you explain this? This guy's doing what the the Bible says the Messiah is going to do. But you guys say he's not of God. So please explain this to us. Well, Lazarus inserts a note of clarification here. He says, now it was a Sabbath on the day when Yeshua made the clay and opened his eyes. That's not accidental, people. Yeshua does this over and over and over. He's purposely looking for confrontations with these religious leaders. Several things that Yeshua did in the healing uh, could be accounted as Sabbath breaking under rabbinic law. Now, this is important you understand. Under rabbinic law, not under Torah. Okay, these guys had added a whole lot of stuff. See, the idea is the Bible says, well, you know, you got to do this. You got to keep the Sabbath. So to make sure we keep it, we got to do all we got to add a bunch of stuff. And pretty soon the things they add become just as important as the original rule. But they're man made. See, to make clay violated an injunction against kneading, you know, like kneading dough. You couldn't do that. Lifting or carrying enough water to wash Eye ointment off your eyes was forbidden. Putting ointment on your eyes was forbidden. According to rabbinic law, intervention to prevent death was permitted. Alright, someone's dying, you're allowed to do something to help. But intervention to make someone better was not permitted. Rabbi Samuel commented this, he said, Man shall live through the precepts of Torah but he should not die in the consequence of the same. All right, so the problem here was Yeshua intervened to heal a person who was in danger of death. He didn't prevent death. He just improved this guy's condition greatly. What these guys had done, they'd taken the Sabbath that God gave to be a blessing, a day of rest, a day of ceasing from labor, and they had turned it into a huge burden. Anything you did just about got you in trouble. According to rabbinic law, you couldn't fill a lamp with oil on the Sabbath. So you make sure it's filled ahead of time. You couldn't light a wick on the Sabbath. If you extinguished a wick on the Sabbath, that was considered work. I mean, they had just laws violating everything. They had a law that said you couldn't go out on the Sabbath with sandals that had nails in them because that constituted a burden because you're carrying these nails around. 
So, I mean, you know, they just turned this blessing into a huge curse. There was even a rabbinic statue uh, recorded by Rabbi Moses ben Maimon, who was known as Maimonides. This was after Christ, but this just gives you an idea of the, they just kept adding to this. He is specifically prohibiting the spreading of saliva on anyone on the Sabbath. See, because they believed saliva had some kind of medicinal value. So they weren't allowed to spread saliva on anybody on the Sabbath, because that would be healing on the Sabbath, and you can't do that, because only if they're dead or dying can you help them out. All right? So their self-imposed rules have distorted the law to the point that these rules take precedence over the obligations of justice and charity. And they resulted in a, a rule of fanaticism that binds them to the point where they can't recognize these miracles. Yeah, he did a miracle, but he did it on the Sabbath, and he violated Sabbath. So that's it. It's messed up, no matter how remarkable the miracle is. Verse 15 says, Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. So, aha, he's breaking the Sabbath. You know, he's made clay. That's a violation. He can't do that. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, now there's a division here, some of the Pharisees, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep Sabbath. But others of the Pharisees were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there's a division among them. So you got a group of Pharisees saying, this man, he's not from God. Now I want you to notice here, they don't say Yeshua is not from God. They say this man. The Pharisees never refer to Yeshua by name. Why Why is that, you think? Because Yeshua, Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Okay? We see that in 121. She will bear a son and you will call his name Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. He's going to save his people, so his name is Yeshua, because that's what Yeshua means. Now, the Greek here, Jesus, doesn't really have a meaning. See, Greek names aren't like Hebrew names. Hebrew names have meaning to them. But it's been changed in the Greek to Jesus. And then later, it was changed into Latin as Jesus. Neither of which have specific meaning, but the Hebrew means Yahweh saves. And they didn't want to call him Yahweh saves because it's hard to say Yahweh saves is not of Yahweh. See, that kind of trips them up there. So they're like, oh, we can't call him by name. This man. So throughout the entire interrogation process, they refer to him indirectly. Because Hebrew names have meaning and they just can't get themselves to say that. He's not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. What they're doing here, I think they're attempting a syllogistic reasoning. Now, I think you all are familiar with syllogisms. We've used them over the years many times. A syllogism is a valid deductive argument. You give two premises, a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. All right, so let's look at their, their syllogism. Their main, major premise is all people who are from God keep the Sabbath. What do you think of the major premise so far? Does that make sense? Don't people who are from God keep the Sabbath? Keeping the Sabbath is a commandment. Very strict commandment. So, okay, we'll go with the major premise. Minor premise. Yeshua doesn't keep the Sabbath. Conclusion, Yeshua is not from God. See, that's their syllogism. So while this would be a valid argument, the problem is one of their premises is not true. 
It's not a sound argument if the premises aren't true. They have a wrong presupposition. Here's their presupposition, and this this is too often our presupposition also. Our rules are equal to God's law. I mean, how many people think that? How many churches have tons of rules, and they just think this is biblical? You cannot go to the movies. Somewhere in the Bible it says that. And you can find some injunction somewhere that you can twist and distort and turn to somehow say movies are of the devil. I don't know. But this is their idea. Our rules are equal. He's breaking our rules. So see, their major premise, all people from God keep the Sabbath. They're not talking about keeping Torah. They're taking their rules. So Yeshua didn't keep the Sabbath. Yes, He did. He didn't keep their rules, their Sabbath. So their second, their minor premise is wrong. Yeshua did keep Sabbath, just not what they thought it was. So they can't say it. So the whole thing just kind of breaks down. See, they thought man couldn't be healed on the Sabbath. And they were convinced that their interpretation of Sabbath was correct, so therefore he's a violator. Their premises was wrong. And when you get a wrong premise, people, guess what? Your conclusion is going to be wrong. All right? That's why the premises have to be true. All right? But it says, but some others, other Pharisees, were saying, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? See, these guys still have a little bit of rational thought left in their brain. And they're thinking, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, who are these other people? Well, I can think of two people specifically. Can you? Two Pharisees that might have been questioning this? How about Nicodemus? Joseph of Arimathea, both of whom were on the council and who later stepped up to provide for Yeshua's burial. And remember we saw in chapter 3 that Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. How do we know that? Because nobody could do these signs that you do unless God was with them. So Nicodemus goes, look, we, we know you're from God. People just don't do these things. So, here we got some Pharisees with some sense. And they're saying, how does a sinner do these things? So, they object to this syllogism of the first group. How can a man who is not of God perform such signs? So, they had their own logical syllogism. It went like this, major premise. Only God can open blind eyes. Does that sound like a logical syllogism? That sound, that major point there is good, alright? Only God opens the eyes of the blind. That's what the Bible teaches. Minor premise, Yeshua opened the eyes of this man. Okay, both those premises we know are true. So what's the conclusion? Yeshua is from God. See, these guys got it right. Miracles, doing these things, the old covenant clearly laid out the fact only God opens the blind eyes. So it's evident that Yeshua had some relationship with God. He could do the miraculous. And so you got a schism among the Pharisees. You know, they're starting to split up because of this. And this group here, you know, was in the minority. Maybe it's just two. Maybe it's just Nicodemus and Joseph and Arimathea. Maybe there's only two of them that are thinking this way. All right? Because you don't hear from them for the rest of the time with the argument. You know, the other guys are predominating. So verse 17. So they said to the blind men again, what do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, and he said, he's a prophet. Now, 
The question here is really not designed to elicit this man's opinion. In other words, what do you think about him? It's a technique to force him to one side of the issue or the other. In the context here, it's just a heavy-handed way of saying, you need to agree with us, he's a sinner, he's a Sabbath breaker, you better agree with us. And so the man says, I think he's a prophet. <laughs> that really had to take him off, okay? And we have seen through this gospel that many viewed Yeshua as a prophet. Moses was saying, they, if they knew Moses, they knew Moses said, There's gonna raise up, God's going to raise up a prophet like me. So the man most, this man most likely spent time in the synagogue. Some commentators say this guy's never been in the synagogue because he was blind. That meant he was a sinner and he couldn't get in the synagogue. I, I, I did a lot of search and I could not find anything that would keep this man out of the synagogue. And I'm sure as a blind man, he sat there and, you know, his other senses are a lot more heightened. And so he's listening. And it's an oral culture anyway, so he's listening to everything and he's taking it all in. He's got a good understanding of Scripture. All right? And he knows that a work of God has been done in his life, and he knows that you know Yeshua did this, and so Yeshua must be a prophet. This guy has not been saved yet. He's been physically healed, not spiritually yet. He will be. But he's he's growing through this chapter. He's learning more and more, alright? So he saw Yeshua as a prophet, probably similar to other miracle-working old covenant prophets like Moses or Elijah. He, he's a prophet, I mean, look what he's done. Alright, then we move to scene 4. Verses 18 to 23, which is interrogation of the man's parents. So now they, the Pharisees interrogate. Remember, this is a, you know, an official court here, basically. They interrogate the man. They inter- now they're going to interrogate his parents because they really don't believe him. The Jews didn't believe it of him. This guy's lying to us. You know? We don't believe he's been blind and received his sight until they call the parents of the very one who had received his sight and they questioned them saying, is this your son? who you say was born blind? Then how does he see? Now remember, they've heard from the man, they've heard from his neighbors and his friends, but they still don't believe. They may be thinking, a man who was good enough to perform a miracle wouldn't have done it on the Sabbath. So there must be some mistake somewhere. It's probably in the man's story. So let's find out if he's telling the truth. Let's get his parents in there. And so his parents answered them and said, we know this is our son. All right, they got that down. And that he was born blind. But how now he sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He can speak for himself. Here's what These parents are scared to death. They basically throw their son under the bus. Ask him. We, we can't tell you. Okay? We can't tell you. Because they're scared of the Pharisees. And so they don't want to mention Yeshua's name. But they do admit that a miracle took place. He was blind. We know he was blind. He sees now something really happened. They admit their son was born blind. So this is the third witness. The man said, his neighbors and friends said, and now you got his parents saying, so at the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established, but not for the Pharisee. All right? But how he sees, we don't know. I think they're lying here. I just think they're scared to death and they're saying, you know, we don't, we don't know. Really? Everybody in Jerusalem knew about Yeshua. This is a big deal. You think their son didn't talk to them? Mom, dad! He never seen his parents before. You don't think he'd want to go and look at them? What happened to you? Yeshua! Don't say that word! 
So they're before the Pharisees and they're saying, we don't know. They know what happened to him. I'm sure he told them. But they're not going to answer because they're afraid of the Pharisees. So they say, ask him. He's of age. What they're saying here, he's of legal age to give you a response himself, which meant he was at least 13 years old or older. So he's of legal age. You ask him. We're not telling you. (laughs) So his parents, now here's a commentary here from Lazarus. His parents said this because they're afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Now, the Pharisees here are now being called the Jews. It's the same group. Through the Gospel of John, the term Jew applies to someone who's hostile towards Christ. So these are the same people. They're just, you know, used by a different name here. They're hostile. They were going to be put out of the synagogue. Aposu nagagas here is the word, the Greek word. It means to be expelled from the synagogue. It appears only in John. It's the only place you'll find it in the whole New Testament. John uses it three times. And by the time this gospel was written, that word was being used to describe Christians who had been expelled from worship at the synagogue because of Christ. They're getting kicked out. All right? Now, the Pharisees have power. They have the power to excommunicate a person, to expel them from the synagogue. So, that's why they're afraid. Now, the institution of the synagogue seems to have been formed during the 70 years of the Babylonian exile, when the people were cut off from the temple. They couldn't worship at the temple, 6th century B.C., and so they formed the synagogue, so they would have a place. And after the return from exile, the synagogue became a community of the believers, where they get together, And they were established in every village. In the first century A.D., uh, Josephus, Jewish historian, said that Jerusalem had 130 synagogues, many of which were formed around trade communities like the baker's trade or the mason's trade. And so they get together with these people. And membership in one of the faith communities not only provided spiritual nourishment and teaching from the study of the Scriptures, but there was a community support there. There was an extended family. like It was just too good to be together with other people. They, they helped each other out. They bought, they sold, they worked together. So an expulsion from the synagogue was a curse that left this person isolated from the community. If you think expulsion from the synagogue was like getting thrown out of a church, you're, you're not even close, okay? Someone gets thrown out of a church, what do they do? There's one on the next corner. You walk in there, are they going to ask you any questions? Hey, we're, let me see your letter from the last church you left. No? They don't know where you, what, what any deal is. Okay, they just be glad you're there, so okay, come on in. It's not like that in the synagogue. Okay, this was a close-knit group, and this group, let me tell you, part of it involved everything. So if you got excommunicated, not only could you not participate in the religious services, you were shunned by all the members of that synagogue. And since it was both a spiritual and economic boycott, the person who was excommunicated was essentially dead to the community. It was a fearful condition. I mean, you lost economically because no one's going to buy or sell anything you're doing because you're, you're de-synagogued, alright? Your friends don't talk to you anymore. This is a big deal. It's their whole life. And that's why these parents are afraid. You know, it's not like we might lose our church. No. We might lose everything. So they're keeping their mouths shut. They're saying, you just talk to him. 
We don't want it. These Pharisees held power over the people. They just kept them in fear. All right, let's move on to scene five, which is verses 24 through 34. Here's a second interrogation by the Pharisees. So the Pharisees interrogate the blind man. They don't believe him. So they interrogate his parents. They don't believe them. So they interrogate the man again. And the man's getting a little sick and tired of this by now. All right. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and he said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. So the Pharisees had the evidence of the neighbors, the parents, and the man himself that had been born blind. And yet, they just didn't buy it. See, what they're really looking for is evidence that would refute the evidence they had. All right? They just want to pressure this man enough to change his story. They're not looking for the truth. They don't care about the truth. So they called the man a second time and they said, Give glory to God. This does not mean, hey, praise God for what he's done in your life. Okay, that's not what they're saying at all. This is a biblical phrase which places a person being questioned under oath to tell the truth. We use it in our court system. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help your God? Yeah. All right, that's what they're saying here. Give glory to God. This is a direct quote from Joshua 7.19. You remember the story in Joshua about Achan? Okay, God told him, when you go up to Jericho and you capture it, don't take anything. No spoil. You can't have any other spoil for yourself. Nothing. Well, Achan saw some stuff and he goes, I really like this stuff. I'm going to take it. So he take it and he hid it. He hid it in his tent. And then the next city they went to conquer was Ai. And they got to Ai and they got their butts kicked and they came running back. So Joshua was on his face saying, oh God. And God said, get up. It's not time to pray. There's sin in the camp. Deal with the sin. So they start, you know, going through the lots trying to figure out who it is. And they find out it's Achan. And Achan has stolen the stuff. And Joshua says, give glory to the Lord of Israel and tell me what you've done. How's that give glory to God? Because we're about to kill you and all your family. And we want you to say, I deserve to be killed right now. My family, we all deserve to be killed because we violated God. Basically, they're saying, God is glorified when you tell the truth. So that's what they're saying. Give glory to God. Say this man's a sinner. See, the Pharisees assumed that glorifying God and glorifying Yeshua are mutually exclusive. When actually to not glorify the Son is to not glorify the Father. 523, people, this is, a, this is an incredible verse that you've got to understand because it just does so much damage to all the cults, isms, and schisms. All right? So that all who will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father, he who does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent Him. So Judaism today, they don't honor the Son, they don't honor the Father. I don't care what they do, I don't care how much Torah they memorize, how much Sabbath they keep, how many laws they keep, if they don't honor Yeshua, they're Christ rejectors and they're God-haters. He would be dishonoring God to say Yeshua is a sinner. Now, as another example of irony here, the Jewish religious leaders who thought of themselves as enlightened were the ones that know some stuff. They're trying to pressure the man who was born blind into denying that he'd received sight. You're not really seeing. You weren't really blind. You know? And the guy's like, you guys are idiots. 
Verse 25. Then he then answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. That's it, people. That's a beautiful testimony. And that's our testimony. I don't understand it all. I know I was blind. And guess what? Now I see glory be to God. He opened my eyes. How do you argue with that testimony? You Pharisees want to argue? You want to put me down? I was blind. I'm standing here looking at you. First time I get to see your ugly mugs. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You see what they just did there? They just admitted he's healed of blindness. How did he open your eyes? Oh, you guys are catching on. Good. Why do you want to hear it again, he says? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Now listen, the Greek grammatical form here expects a no answer. All right? So you, you I know you guys don't want to be his disciples, basically what he's saying. But this is sarcasm here. I mean, he's getting in the face of these religious leaders. He shows an incredible amount of wit and courage here. This response tells me this man felt no intimidation before these guys at all. None. No fear being put out of the synagogue. No fear of anything they do to him. Oh, you guys don't want to be his disciples, do you? Listen, you know, he was born blind. Therefore, considered a sinner by most people. Probably ostracized most of his life. He's like, I don't sweat you. I just don't sweat you. You can put all the pressure on you want. Let me tell you, I was blind. I see. That's the bottom line. Well, they reviled him and said, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. And we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for you, as for this man, Yeshua, <laughs> we don't know where he's from. <laughs> okay? We don't have a clue about where Yeshua came from. All right. First of all, they say, we're disciples of Moses. They are not. Okay. Because Yeshua said in John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you'd believe me. Because Moses wrote about me. Moses wrote about me. Now, here's what I think is interesting. The scribes and the Pharisees of Yeshua's day, they held Moses in great esteem. As the lawgiver, they claimed to be his disciples. Right? I mean, they're just Moses. Everything's about Moses. Moses is the greatest. What about the Moses generation? How'd they feel about him? The Israelites who lived in Moses' day, they rebuked Moses. They disobeyed Moses. They wanted to have Moses killed. So Moses' own people at his day were like, nah, they weren't that hot. But now these guys later, Moses is the greatest. Okay? He's the greatest. And we're his disciples. As for this man, they said, we don't know where he's from. Here's the religious leaders, the experts in Torah. They don't know where Yeshua's from. He's going around performing miracles, feeding thousands of people, raising dead people, giving the blind sight. And they're like, we don't know where he's from. Experts in the law. Again, the Torah taught over and over the Messiah would heal blind eyes. This is a sign. Hey, this guy's healing blind eyes. He's saying he's Messiah. Nah, he's not. We don't know where he came from. In John 6, when Yeshua preached the sermon on the bread of life, he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. 
I've come down from heaven to give my life for the world. He said it again and again and again. I came from heaven and his miracles demonstrated. They say, we don't know where he's from. Okay, hang on. I think these next two verses <laughs> are just absolute. I love these verses. They're, they're just, you know, here's a mere beggar standing before the religious and civil authorities of the land, the high power of the Supreme Court. He's standing between the high mucky mucks. And here's what he says. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. Man, this is incredible. This is amazing that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. That's amazing, isn't it? This guy has got guts. He's saying, your people that put yourselves as authoritators, interpreters of the word of God, and you don't have a clue where this man comes from. This man knows the Tanakh. And he knows the Tanakh says only God can open the blind eyes. And he opened my eyes. But you don't know where he's from. That's amazing. What's the problem here? They are blinded by their traditions. They are blinded by the things they've made up. And they can't even see the truth because of it. That's no different today, people. you got religious authorities in the same spot. Their unbelief in view of the evidence is just incredible to him. I mean, the proof that Yeshua had come from God was his ability to perform such a powerful and constructive miracle as creating eyes for this man. Now, remember their syllogism? They've been saying that a man who is of God doesn't heal on the Sabbath. Yeshua heals on the Sabbath, therefore Yeshua is not of God. Now, he gives them a syllogism of his own. Now, this is incredible. Okay, this is a beggar. He's arguing with the intellectual elite. Alright? And he says to them, we know that God does not hear sinners. Alright? He's quoting Torah here. But if anyone is a God-fear and does his will, he hears him. And this is something every Jew know, knew or should have known. It's a truth which some Pharisees have already pointed to in verse 16. It's a truth... Often taught throughout the Bible, Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. They understood God does not hear sinners. Proverbs 15, 29, Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Again, if this guy's a sinner, how's God listening to him? This is an old covenant principle. This man knew his Bible. Now, the Pharisees taught that God blesses the righteous, and he punishes the wicked. They taught that God will hear the prayers of the righteous, but not those of the wicked. So if Yeshua is a sinner, as the Pharisees insist, how do they explain the miracles he's performing? They can't. So this former blind man gives him a syllogism of his own. Here's his major premise. We know that God does not hear sinners. Okay, Backed up by the Torah. No argument there. All right, let's see his minor premise. God has heard this man, Yeshua. He has healed my blindness. They've been trying to get around that, but they can't. His eyes are open. This guy sees. So the conclusion is what? Therefore, this man is not a sinner. He is a man of God. So here's a beggar defeating the Pharisees with the Pharisees' own syllogistic weapons. You want to use syllogisms? At least make your premises correct, he's telling them. Here's some correct premises. You can't argue with these premises because they're from the Word of God. First of all, the Word of God says God does not hear sinners. Minor premise, 
you can see that I can see. My parents told you I was blind. My neighbors told you, all right, the miracle has happened. Therefore, this man's not a sinner, people. All right, verse 32, he says, Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person. You guys have seen something that hadn't been seen before. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Now, I actually find that Jewish tradition reports one or two instances of a blind man being healed in Tobit. All right? But it wasn't anyone that had been blind from birth. And there's no miracle of giving sight to the blind throughout the Tanakh. But Tanakh does teach that God is the only one who has the ability to give sight to the blind. Psalm 146.8, Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh raises up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Well, they can't accept that he's from God, which is the only possible correct interpretation of this miracle. They just can't buy it. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Now, the if here is a second class conditional sentence, which is called contrary to fact. It should be understood as if this man had not come from God, which he did, he could not have done anything like this, but he did. So, you know, you guys should be able to see this and understand it. He's telling these Pharisees. If he's from God, how does he do this kind of stuff? All right. When you lose an argument, what do you do? You start name calling. We talked about this recently, okay? You give the argument. You know you're losing. They answered him. You were born entirely in sins. (laughs) And you're teaching us? You're trying to teach the teachers? So they put him out. This is the same thing they said to Yeshua. We're not born of fornication. They're losing an argument with him. They throw the same thing at this blind guy. You're born in sins. And they just start name calling. They can't deal with his logic. They can't deal with the truth. So they just start calling him names. And this poor guy, he's losing his privilege of participating in the synagogue because of his stand for Yeshua. You know, many other Jewish believers followed him in a fate throughout the years since this incident happened. And this is the, really the first persecution of Yeshua's followers that Lazarus records. They're taking a stand, this man's taking a stand, and so they're de-synagoguing him. Alright? Losing all economic change. Of course, the guy's been blind, he hasn't ever done anything as far as work, he's been beggar. So I don't think he's really worried about it. You know, but now he can see, he's just excited he can see, and he's standing with Yeshua. How do you not stand with him? The guy, he just gave me eyes. Okay? I mean, you know, that just has to be something that comes from God. All right, we go to scene 6, which is verses 35 to 38, and deals with spiritual sight. All right, this man who had been born blind is now going to have his eyes of his heart open. Yeshua heard that he had been put out from, put him out. And finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Yeshua said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now, let me just tell you here, there's some textual questions here. Alright, several manuscripts omit all of verse 38. And Yeshua said from verse 39. But in view of the overwhelming textual evidence supporting the inclusion of this, I think it's just best to see it as original. It's just the very few that are questioning this, but I want you to know there's, there is question here. Alright, so it says, Yeshua finding him. I want you to understand something here, people. This is how you receive spiritual sight. Yeshua 
finds you. It didn't say the man sought him out, looked for him, nothing. No, Yeshua found him. It all starts, spiritual sight, the new birth, all starts with the divine initiative. It all starts by the sovereign purpose in the mind of God. We've seen this over and over in this gospel. In John 6.37, Yeshua said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. If the Father gave you to me, you're going to come. In verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So you don't come unless you're drawn by the Spirit of God. And in verse 65, he said, no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. The Father has to grant you permission to come. So coming to Yeshua, listen, is a gift. We don't get the gift because we come to Yeshua. The coming is the gift. The fact that we come, that's the gift. God opened our eyes so we can come. Dead men don't do anything and until God gives us life, we just lay there and don't respond. Alright? Nothing at all. So, Yeshua hears the blind man has been evicted from the synagogue and by implication from mainstream Jewish culture. So he goes looking for him and he finds him. I think this would be really comforting to Lazarus' first readers. Because they're suffering persecution. They're like, oh, Yeshua found this guy who'd been de-synagogued and he's comforting him. And that, you know, that's encouraging to them. And we need to remember, like I said before, this guy's never seen Yeshua. So Yeshua comes up to him. And the last time he met, he put mud on his eyes, told him to go wash. And he went and did that. And Yeshua says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I think, of course, he recognizes his voice. Some early manuscripts here and some modern translations have Son of God instead of Son of Man. And I think the reason for that, we think Son of God is like a much more spiritual, important title. It's not. It wasn't to the first century, alright? But uh, from John's usage and the manuscript evidence, Son of Man has far more appropriate, much more support for it. Once again... By saying Son of Man, he's referring to the very well-known vision of the prophet Daniel in 7, 13, and 14. And in Daniel's vision, the divine Messiah, who is to receive universal kingship and worldwide worship, the Son of Man, worship from everybody. The Son of Man in this vision must be divine, because only God is to be worshipped. So this is an even greater title than Son of God to the first century Jew. This is the ninth time Yeshua has used this title of himself. He's going to use it a total of 12 times. That's kind of a significant number. But he's going to use it 12 times in this gospel. So the formerly blind man, although he has never been able to read sacred scripture, clearly understands this title. And he understands that Yeshua is the Messiah. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now the word used for worship here, proskuneo, means to prostrate yourself. And in the other six places in the gospel where the word proskuneo is used, it means to truly worship. Not just to fall down. I mean, you can fall down before someone and not worship. Not give them worth. But worship was something due to God alone. And so this was wrong here for Yeshua to take this worship unless he's God. <laughs> but Yeshua says, oh no, 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 get up. Like in, in the gospel or in Revelation, when he falls down before the angel, oh, no, no, get up, I'm a man too. You know, no, 
You sure doesn't say any of that stuff because you can worship me because I'm God. I'm God. This man falling on his knees before him as this chapter ends is really in contrast to the end of chapter 8. In chapter 8, when Yeshua declared who he was, what did they do? They picked up stones and they tried to kill him. And here this man falls down and he worships him. Alright, that brings us to the final scene, scene 7, which is spiritual blindness. And Yeshua said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. That's the blind man. And those who see, that's the Pharisees, they see physically, may become blind spiritually. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Yeshua said to them, If you were blind, physically he meant, You'd have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You think you have understanding. You think you're enlightened and you don't get it at all. See, for the first time in this chapter, Yeshua and the Pharisees come face to face. And it appears that Yeshua here is alluding to Isaiah chapter 6. He says, go and tell this people, Israel, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive that their ears dull and their eyes dim. Why? Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. They are under judgment. Blindness is judgment to them. Now, when you first read Yeshua's statements here, um, some people have a problem because in John 5.22 and in 8.15 and here in this passage, they seem to be contradictory teachings. Because Yeshua often says, I didn't come to judge anybody. And here he's saying, I came for judgment. Well, Yeshua doesn't judge unless it's in the name and as the agent of the Father. When he says, I do not judge, he means I don't judge anything on my own. Independent of the Father's will, I don't do anything. I don't judge. Alright? So Yeshua is judging them and his judgment on them is reminiscent of of the old covenant prophets who would come and pronounce judgment on Israel because of their sin, because of their disobedience. In Hebrew, it was called a riv. And the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, they all condemned old covenant Israel for the violations against the covenant. Over and over, they just kept turning to false gods. Kept turning to worship another. Let's worship a different god. What in the world's wrong with you people? In each case, this riv resulted in the judgment of God. It resulted in the destruction of Israel in 722 B.C., and in Judah in 587 B.C., they were destroyed because they didn't want to trust in Yeshua. They didn't want to follow God. They didn't want to honor God. Now remember what Yeshua has already told these Pharisees in John chapter 8. He says, and He was saying to them, you're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, you're going to die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. They didn't get it. They couldn't see it. They're blinded by their petty little rules and traditions, so they couldn't even grasp that this man, what he had done. And again, these Jewish leaders claim to be Moses' disciples. Well, I want you to notice what Moses told his disciples, okay? And Peter, on Pentecost, quotes Moses, and then he tells the Jews this. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Speaking of Yeshua. 
To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. He's going to raise up someone. You got to do whatever he tells you to do. All right. Then he says this, and it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. The people here is a reference to true Israel, the people of God. Peter identifies true Israel as those who follow Messiah. If you reject Messiah, he's saying, you're no longer the people. You're not God's people anymore. Because if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. So this chapter advances the revelation of Yeshua's true identity. That's what Lazarus is trying to do. The whole thing, I'm giving you these signs so you can believe that he's the Christ. And this one is an incredible sign. He's given sight to a blind man. That's the primary objective of this gospel, that you see the miracles, you see the signs, and you say, this man must be from God, and you believe, and you receive life. It also shows that as the light of this revelation becomes clearer and clearer, so does the darkness. Because some people prefer the darkness to the light. They just don't want to see. They're blind. Paul Harris writes this. This is a story about a man who sat in darkness, was brought to see the light. Not only physically, but spiritually. On the other hand, it's also a tale about those who thought they saw, the Pharisees, were blinding themselves to the light and plunging into darkness. The story starts in verse 1 with a blind man who will gain his sight. It ends in 41 with the Pharisees who have become spiritually blind. And that's the whole thing of this story, people. God comes and He takes this man and He gives him sight and these other people just plunge deeper and deeper into darkness because they will not accept what they see. Again, another incredible story about the sovereignty of God and how God gives sight to whom He will and apart from Him giving it, you just don't get it. So hopefully we can all learn a little something about boldness from this blind man who's willing to, you know, to just tell it like it is, you know. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at Your Word. Lord, I look forward to meeting this man, Father, in eternity. Incredible that he suffered for so long and then was given sight and he just realizes who You are. You brought him to salvation. And he's so bold to stand before these religious leaders, these civil leaders, unafraid, proclaiming the truth. I was blind and now I see. Father, that is our testimony. May we be bold as this man in sharing with others the gospel of the blessed God. Amen.